Please open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5, the final three verses of 1 Peter, the final words from Peter in this letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Uh, We'll read these together and then we'll pray for the Lord's assistance as we seek to understand and apply what He's said through Peter to us. 1 Peter 5, 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. God, I pray that we would apply what you have written to us, what you've given to us. Father, thank you for this letter of 1 Peter. Thank you for the hope that it gives, the love and faith that it teaches. Father, I praise you for the salvation that Jesus has brought. God, I pray that as we study this for this few minutes, Lord, I pray that it would not be just throw away words, that it would not be emptiness, but God, that these words would encourage and challenge us, Father, that we would walk away different from when we came in the door this morning. We praise you for Jesus. We thank you for your word. Amen. Well, yeah, we have reached the end of First Peter. The closing words that Peter gives in this letter, no words in the scriptures are unnecessary or wasted or even unhelpful to us. And so we're going to take a look at these few verses. And I think I've shared this with you before, but I had a professor in seminary that told me, don't preach the opening and the closing of a letter. It's like preaching, you know, dear John and, you know, thank you, have a nice day, love Jane. (laughs) It's it's like trying to preach those kinds of openings and closings of a letter. But Jesus said that we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, And all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that includes what would otherwise be throwaway verses at the beginning or the end of a letter, the words in the opening and closings of letters. So in these closing words, Peter, what he's actually doing here is living out this life in Christ that he's been teaching us about through the whole letter. He has set before us the reality of life, the hard reality, that really it's not really necessarily going to be especially easy for us, but the truth of life in Christ is that God himself is with us and for us in this life, and we are for him and for his glory, his fame, his holiness. And when his purpose for our life becomes our purpose, our difficulties become not just understandable, but necessary for God's plan in our life, for our good, and for our powerful God to have his plan accomplished or he wouldn't bring them to us. So I was thinking about this the other day. Actually, when this sort of thing happened, I wasn't thinking about this, and I want to share this story with you. It's a silly kind of story, but it was profound to me, <laughs> so I want to share it as, uh, as an example of how this looks in our life. The other day, my wife and I were preparing to go um, attend a parade. It was going to be cool, and it's outside in the evening where, you know, it gets cool this time of year. And so I was looking for some gloves, some light gloves. And I've got a couple of pairs that I keep usually in jacket pockets. So I was looking around for my gloves, and I hadn't found them, so I I thought of two jackets that I have in this closet. And I didn't want to go in there because it's difficult to get in there. We've got a lot of things in the way. You have to kind of crouch and get in there. So I, I made my way into that closet. I pulled the jackets out. I searched for the gloves, and there are none in there. So at this point, I'm a little frustrated that I can't find gloves for my hands. 
I, I kind of crouch to get into that closet, and I put the jackets back up to hang them up, and they fall to the ground, and then the hangers fall out of the jackets too, right? So now, now I've got to actually climb inside the closet and crouch down and grab both the hangers and the jackets and bring them out, and you would not believe how frustrated I got at this little insignificant thing that happened. It was amazing. I, I was immediately struck with how frustrated I was and how angry I had gotten just in a flash because how can I be so inconvenienced, <laughs> right? It, it, I know it's a silly example, but it taught me so much. It was so revealing about where my heart was at that moment. I was not grateful that my family had jackets <laughs> or that I had jackets or that I had gloves, even though I couldn't find them. It showed me how much I want things to be easy for myself, right? It showed me my anger in my heart that was already there, but it'll, it gave it an opportunity to come out, and I could see it, and I didn't like it, but I was grateful that God gave that opportunity. Look, that's what's inside. It was just waiting for a moment to come out. Now, that's what we do with little things, like jackets falling off of hangers. <laughs> How much more do we do those with big things? These big things, the little things reveal us, they teach us, they change us. Life doesn't get easier, right? I mean, things don't just start, jackets don't hang themselves up. <laughs> um, cars don't stop breaking down. Houses don't stop having problems. You know, uh, suffering doesn't stop. But we start to view the troubles of life differently. God works in the little things and he works in the big things. He works in the hard things. He works in the easy things to bring about the purpose of saving us sanctifying us, and shaping us. He's drawing us to him in salvation, he's sanctifying us to holiness, and he's molding us into useful and faithful servants for his glory. And so we do what we has, he has called us to do, and we endure what he's called us to endure so that we can grow our faith, so that we can grow our hope and our love in him and for his people and trust him. He's got much better things for us in this life and in eternity. And so Peter closes his letter in these verses, and simply by closing the letter the way that he does, he's living out this life in Christ that he's been telling us about and what he's just told us to be and do. So these are not worthless verses. There's much we can learn even from these few words of closing. So here, Peter gives two sets of examples of living out our life in Christ. Two sets of examples. The first set is the examples of authentic service in verse 12. Number one in your notes, examples of authentic service in verse 12. And, and there are two examples of this authentic service. A, the first one here in your notes is Sylvanus. And if you don't know how to spell it, it's right there in verse 12. Because <laughs> that's not a common name for us, right? But here, Peter calls Sylvanus a faithful brother as I regard him. He was faithful. Uh, Sylvanus was known to be trustworthy, dependable, reliable, he was known as a faithful brother by all who knew him, including Peter, which is why he can say personally, as I regard him. Uh, to know Sylvanus was to know a faithful brother, and Peter was giving his personal stamp of approval on this brother. And this is important because faithfulness is a key trait for believers. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.2 that we should be regarded as stewards, and it is required of stewards that they be found Faithful. And when he couldn't go to Corinth and Paul wanted to find someone who would 
care of the Corinthian believers just like he would. He sent Timothy in 1 Corinthians 4 because he was a beloved and faithful brother. We often talk about the four-generation passage of 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul entrusted the truth to Timothy, so Paul was the first generation entrusting the truth to Timothy. And Timothy was to entrust the truth to faithful men who would then also be able to entrust it to other men who would be able to teach it to others. And so they were to be faithful in hearing and gathering and learning and applying the truth and then faithful to pass it on to other people. Faithfulness was the key attribute they were to be looking for, even more than teaching ability, even more than any of their gifting. Are they faithful? And what is Jesus' commendation for His servants at the end who enter His glory? Well done, good and faithful servant. God himself is called faithful throughout the scriptures. We've been singing about his faithfulness all throughout this morning so far. And 1 Peter 4.19, of course, he is called the faithful creator. Jesus, our Savior, is the faithful one. And so faithfulness is a key attribute of believers for God first and then for us as he works in us. Now, in our culture, faithfulness is recognized as important, but it's faithfulness to yourself. Right? How often do we hear this, um, be true to yourself? Be faithful or true to what makes you happy, what your heart wants, what you think about, what you dream about. Life is all about you, what you can get out of it, what you can do, what you can enjoy. But believers know that life is all about Christ, His purpose, His plan, His goal, His glory, what He thinks, what He says. So we strive to be faithful to Him instead of ourselves because we know that our flesh wants that message from the world, to be faithful and true to self and not to others, not to Christ. Our flesh wants to run away from that message of be true, be faithful to Christ. But Silvanus was known to be faithful to the Lord and to His people. Peter says that he was faithful, personally giving this stamp of approval of faithfulness to this brother, but it wasn't just to Peter that Silvanus was faithful. Do you remember when Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, uh, wow, Paul and Barnabas, <laughs> they wanted to take John, Mark, we call him just Mark, they wanted to take them along on what we call Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 13. They hadn't gone very far when Mark abandoned them in the work on that long journey, and he went back home. Now, in Acts 15, as Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go back out on what we call Paul's second missionary journey, Paul's, uh, Barnabas told Paul, look, let's bring Mark again. And Paul said, absolutely not. There's no way we're bringing that guy. He skipped out on us before the work even got difficult. He deserted us right before the hard stuff. People, people were, don't you remember Barnabas? They were arguing with us and they were persecuting us when we were trying to preach to them. They stirred up crowds and mobs of people in anger against us. They drove us out of Antioch. The, the mob almost stoned us. Do you remember Barnabas in their rage at Iconium? But in Lister, you remember they caught up to us and they did stone me, Paul said. Oh, they thought I was dead. They stoned me almost to the point of death. And now you want to bring Mark who left before all of that fun started? No way. And it was such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they split up there at that point. And Barnabas took Mark and brought him to the area that they had gone to previously and, and met all of the churches that they had set up 
Paul and Barnabas together. Barnabas and Mark went and did that. But Paul selected a man who would be faithful in the work, a man named Silas, which is the Greek form of this Roman name, Silvanus. This man, Silas, Silvanus, that accompanied Paul on his second missionary journey was faithful to this missionary journey, to Paul that he was with. In Philippi, after healing a demon-possessed girl, Paul and Silas were dragged before the magistrates to be judged, and without a trial, they had their clothes ripped off of them, and they were beaten with rods. They were fastened to the stock, their feet were fastened to the stocks in prison, and they were sitting there in a dungy prison, not the three healthful meals and a gym and cable TV that people have today, right? It was horrid, squalid conditions. It was a terrible place for people who had just been wounded by a beating. And they're sitting in there in the dark, and what do we know that Paul and Silas were doing in that Philippian prison? Amen. They were praying and singing hymns to Jesus. <laughs> God used them to save the Philippian jailer who was there, who was about to kill himself because they were freed. And the whole household of that Philippian jailer became saved because of Paul and Silas and their praying and their singing hymns in that terrible condition. And then they continued through persecution in Thessalonica. In Berea, Paul and Silas encountered more angry crowds. And so the, the believers there sent Paul ahead to Athens, but Silas remained in the hot zone of Berea while Paul went ahead. Now, they met up again later, but they only encountered more persecution and angry mobs. But Silas was faithful with Paul throughout all of that. Uh, Silas was with Paul when he wrote First and Second Thessalonians. He's mentioned in Second Corinthians 1 with Paul and Timothy as they faithfully proclaimed God's message, the gospel. But now here he is with Peter in First Peter 5, probably in Rome, as we'll see in a minute, and he's faithful. Now, commentators debate what his actual role was here, as Peter mentions him. Some believe he could have been what we call an amanuensis, which was the person who not just wrote down what Peter said, like a, like a secretary or a scribe, um, but also that uh, the amanuensis would have a role of um, polishing up the Greek or, or saying things in a different way that would be helpful with the permission of Peter. But this was an important job, and he had to be faithful in this job of penning Scripture as God inspired it through Peter. Others believe that he was simply the deliverer of the message, and that obviously would require an enormous amount of faithfulness. You don't just give a letter to people that's important uh, if the man is unfaithful. So you can see that this brother is a faithful brother. Now, let's notice a few things, and let's learn from this example. Um, Silas, Silvanus, didn't play favorites, did he? He wasn't guilty of partiality or favoritism. He served alongside both Peter and Paul, who had totally different ministries. Uh, Peter to the Jewish people, Paul to the Gentiles. And it's estimated that on the missionary journey that Silas accompanied Paul on, they traveled over 3,000 miles together, not in a car, (laughs) Peter here is staying in Rome in this ministry that that Silvanus is serving alongside now, and Rome was not exactly a Christian epicenter. It was not uh, the Christian Mecca. But there were two different kinds of ministries, and there were two different kinds of men between Peter and Paul, but one faithful Silvanus serving wherever the Lord had him, whatever ministry was there. Often people prefer this preacher or that 
pastor, and they grab hold to certain men in ministry, but not this faithful brother, Sylvanus. He was faithful to the Lord. And if the Lord called him to serve somewhere else, he served there. That's another thing to notice. How often do we see Silas, Sylvanus, in the spotlight? He's helping to write Scripture, not just First Peter, but he's mentioned with Paul in First and Second Thessalonians writing Scripture. He's preaching, he's praying, he's singing, but he's never in the limelight. He's never clamoring for attention. He doesn't appear to get anything out of his service, I mean, except for some bruises and maybe some broken bones. What Peter says here is the only thing nice that we read about him, this faithful brother. So he didn't serve for money or fame, he just served faithfully. Why was he used so much? That was a question that came to my mind. You know, with Peter and with Paul traveling everywhere, not traveling in Rome, and everything that he did, the reason he was used so much was because he did it with excellence. He must have done everything to the best of his ability or he wouldn't be useful, this useful in writing scripture and accompanying these missionaries. That's what's required of us stewards. Are you faithful like Sylvanus is faithful? He was used over and over ministry, but isn't that usually how it works? Often there are many who could be serving, many more who should be serving, but only a few who are putting in the work. It's usually only a few who are consistently and faithfully serving. God can use other people. He could have used more than just this man, Sylvanus, with Peter and with Paul in these different ministries, but he was the one who was faithful. So the beginning requirement is faithfulness, and we need to be following Sylvanus' example of faithfulness. So he's the first example. The second example that we see, B in our notes, is Peter. Peter himself becomes an example. And and, and I don't believe he's intentionally setting himself up as an example here, but he becomes one through what he writes. Peter says through Sylvanus, he was faithful to write this letter. Now Peter uses the word briefly here. And if you look at this letter, and and you've studied this letter with us, and all of it that it contains about our salvation, our purpose for physical and spiritual life in Christ, holiness and love, suffering persecution for our faith, our responsibilities in every area of life before government, at work, at home, our faith and hope in the Lord and His Word, our service to Him, all of those things that this brief letter covers, how does he fit all of this into five short chapters? To me, this is an obvious sign of ultimate divine authorship, that God wrote this. God breathed this letter through Peter. Uh, So much can be placed into so few words. God gives us these words, his word through Peter, and Peter was faithful to write these words. And it's so brief, and yet it's so deep. I don't know if you remember, but we started studying this letter in April, And it took only a little bit more than 20 minutes to read it, yet we've spent over 20 hours studying, preaching through 1 Peter together, not counting today. And you wouldn't believe how much I've cut out of these messages. You wouldn't believe because you've had to sit here through so many of them as long as they've been. The Word of God is so deep when we study it, when we dive into it, when we get into it. It's so deep, even in the brevity and the, the concise nature of the Word of God. But Peter was faithful to write what God wanted written, and he sent it out. How did Peter write this letter? Well, he says he wrote it exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Exhorting, we've talked about, is that word parakaleo. 
It means encouraging alongside. Declaring is the word testifying, giving witness to the truth. So in this letter, Peter has been holding up the truth, the whole truth, the difficult truth, but the truth we need, and he's been calling us alongside to obey it. Obey the Lord by obeying his word, his truth. Here it is. Get alongside. Let's get behind this. Let's submit to the Lord. And what he's written is the true grace of God, all that he's written. What does it cover? Again, in such a short space, all of life, whether we're in church, whether we're in the house, in in the home, in the workplace, in society before government, whether we're being persecuted or suffering or not, all of our life in Christ is covered here in this letter. And this life that we live is lived in the true grace of God. True, genuine, real grace. Now, we might get fooled into thinking sometimes that God's grace is only available and only comes when we get out of troubles and suffering. But that's not always God's grace. We might start to think that grace is when he protects us from physical persecution or from verbal persecution, but that's not always his grace either. God's true grace is evident in restoring our original purpose for our life, for the glory of God. That's when we understand his purposes better, his, the things that are happening to us, his purpose, his plan, the reason for our suffering, that he is with us, that he does protect us, and that he promises that we will be ultimately saved and brought into his glory with him. That's his true grace. His grace is mentioned 10 times in these short chapters. You remember in chapter 1, verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In verse 10 of chapter 1, the prophets prophesied about the grace that is ours, the grace that we live in, that we have received in Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 13, with our minds prepared for action, we set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed when Jesus returns. Chapter 2, verse 19, and again in verse 20, it's a gracious thing to God when we endure suffering while we're suffering unjustly, enduring sorrows. Chapter 3, verse 7, husbands, you probably remember this verse. Your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life, so live with her in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Chapter 4, verse 10, each of us has received a gift according to God's varied grace, so use it. And to serve other people as good stewards. Chapter 5, verse 5, God gives us grace when we are humble but he opposes us and does not give grace to us when we're proud. Chapter 5, verse 10, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us after we have suffered a little while. And this is the last mention of God's grace here to close out the letter in verse 12. He's exhorting and declaring that here is the true grace of God. In this life, right here, right now, even in the middle of trouble and suffering and persecution and affliction and all the things that happen to us, our life is a life of grace lived in God, the true grace of God. So what are we to do? Peter doesn't stop exhorting us. Even though it's the end of the letter, he says, stand firm in it. Be permanent. Be fixed here, never wavering from God's grace. God's grace is sufficient for us to live our life. His grace is sufficient for us to persist in suffering, to persevere through persecution, to endure sorrow, and to possess joy through all of it. That's his grace to us. And his word is sure. His word gives us our hope. 
And so our firm stand that we're to take never comes from ourselves. We don't draw it up in ourselves and our own strength or ability. Our hope and endurance never come from feeling good about ourselves or who we are, but who Christ is and who He is in us. So Peter sets God's Word full of grace before us. He declares it, and then he calls us alongside to submit and obey in hope and faith and love. And that's Peter's example of faithful service. And now, Peter knew what it meant to fail at faithfulness. Yet he also knew what it was to be restored and forgiven. And after he was restored, what we know about Peter is that he was faithful to his death. We don't have it in inspired scripture, but tradition tells us that Peter was eventually arrested and martyred for his faithfulness to Jesus. Now, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter was so afraid, you remember what, uh, he was so afraid of what might happen that he denied Jesus three times. And when Jesus restored Peter, he told him, you're going to be martyred, essentially. That was the paraphrase of what Peter was told by Jesus. So when he was captured later in life, rather than fearing what might happen, he stood firm in his spiritual life, in his, even in his physical life, to endure whatever they were about to do to him. And tradition reveals, again, that he was sentenced to be crucified, just like Jesus was. But Peter, in his own mind, said, I'm not worthy to be martyred and killed the same way that my Savior was killed, so if you're going to hang me on the cross, hang me upside down. Because he thought, I'm not worthy to suffer the same way. What will be said, brother, sister, of your faithfulness? Not by people outside, not by people around us. They'll miss the importance of service to the Lord. This is, we're talking faithfulness to the Lord. What would be said of your faithfulness to the Lord? You may not be a Peter, Apostle Peter, that everybody knows, everybody recognizes. You may not be Sylvanus, that just a few people know. Maybe you'll fail and fall on your face like Peter did and have to be restored and forgiven. Maybe you'll fall down and have to be raised up again in God's grace. But when you stand at the judgment seat of Christ, if He is your Lord and Savior now, He will be your Lord and Savior then. And He will bring you into His glory, the home that He's prepared for you. But we will each of us have to give an account for our faithfulness to Him. Will you be saved, Paul asks, but only as through fire? Just, just saved and that's it. Or will you receive a reward for your faithfulness? Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3. Follow these examples of Sylvanus and Peter and others in authentic, faithful service. It doesn't mean perfection, as Peter demonstrates. But in these closing words, Peter doesn't only give us examples of authentic service. He also sets before us a second set of examples, and these are, number two in our notes, the examples of authentic love, verses 13 and 14. Examples of authentic love. Now, as is typical of letters during this time, Peter closes with greetings from whom and to whom. And the first one isn't immediately clear to us who it is, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. The next one is Mark, who Peter calls his son. But the third is yet another one of these one another passages that we, that we continually notice and that we call out here. The people are to greet one another. Now, it's this last one that we'll consider first because I believe it sets the tone for the other greetings. Like we said, this is sort of typical for greetings to be sent at the end of the letter, but I believe these greetings 
at the end of the letter are guided by this last exhortation to greet one another with the kiss of love. As they're gathered together to hear this letter read, and every other time they gather together, there is to be a greeting. But Peter calls for a special greeting, the kiss of love. Now, as he tells them to greet one another with a special greeting, there's a sense here that it's a greeting between one another, but it's also a greeting for those that Peter lists here at the end. It's almost like, you know, if we think about grandparents, uh, when they're talking to their kids, their adult kids, and they say, uh, say hi to the grandkids for us. Kiss the, give, the kid, give the grandkids a kiss for us, right? That's sort of what, what Peter's saying here. Greet one another with a kiss of love for us and for the sake of one another. What about this kiss of love? What is this about? An in-person greeting of a kiss was also typical at the time. It was, it was given on the cheek or the forehead, and it's still acceptable in many places, many parts of the world. But what sets this apart is this word love. The word here is that agape love, that special, sincere love of high regard. It's concern for the other person that, con- that transcends concern for self, and it's totally alien to the world's meaning of love. Love like this in the Bible means a devotedness and a fellowship together. It's a continual decision to act for the good of the object of your love, whoever that may be, even if it means difficulty or pain for you. So rather than being driven by feelings or emotion, it's driven by a knowledge of who the person is and how deserving they are of love because God has loved them and he's loved you. (laughs) So therefore, we decide to love the other people. It's driven by knowledge It's driven by your will, and it's continued by your will, your decision to love, regardless of how you may feel at any given time. That's the kind of love that Peter talks about here. Greet one another. Be happy to see one another. Even if you were to see one another every single day, every time you do see one another, renew your love for one another, and communicate and demonstrate that love outwardly with a kiss of love. Not a kiss of habit or routine or formality or custom, but a kiss of love. And that's the key to these greetings. The greetings are not just say hi to so-and-so. It's greet with unconditional love for one another and for us, because we can't be there, and for the sake of one another. Have that love. Have that love inside for one another and then show it, whether it gets returned or not, whether you're in the mood or not. Because it's not dependent on feelings or moods or emotion, but on the truth of who they are as brothers and sisters. And so for us today, the key is not that we need to resurrect this greeting of kissing one another, necessarily. But each of us needs to become engaged in the practice of greeting one another with love. And if kissing isn't appropriate, and it's usually not in our culture, there are other ways to show love for one another. But if we did, if, if, we, if we started to do this, imagine how difficult it would be to be mad at somebody if you were going to have to come up and give them a kiss to greet them, a kiss of love, or to stay mad at somebody. Imagine how difficult it would be. For that love to be genuine and sincere, it must begin in our minds and our hearts before it can come out in our words and actions. We need to learn and this is, this is what we've got to do to help this. We've, we've got to learn to not just view life differently, as we've been talking about from God's perspective, but view one another differently, the people that are around us. And not just those that we know, 
but all of the one another's who are here. So notice the way that Peter describes the first greeting source, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Now, people debate who this might have been. It's unlikely that all of the people in this vast area that Peter wrote to knew one person well enough that he could just refer to her as she who is likewise chosen at Babylon. Most scholars believe this was a reference to the local church that Peter was a part of or that he was helping to lead, the body of Christ. The, The word church is a feminine noun, and so when Peter says she, he's referring to the church the people there, not the building. (laughs) So in this veiled reference, he's probably referring to the church. But whether it's a person or an entire body of believers, the only qualification that Peter gives for the relationship that they have is that she is likewise chosen. This This could be a whole group of strangers, a whole group of people that you've never met, and they're sending a greeting of love, and it's based on one criterion, that they are likewise chosen. Now, by the way, Babylon is most likely a reference to Rome, since Peter's believed to be in Rome at this point in history. Um, He uses Silvanus' Roman name instead of the Greek Silas. But Babylon, in Revelation chapters 17 and 18, is the center of the worldly power, the worldly system that's controlled by Antichrist. It's the capital of all of the worldly power and sin, and although it will be a real city, it also is a symbol of all that the world has and offers in rebellion to God. So that's the the picture of Babylon. It was in use by Jewish people at the time because of its history of paganism and power during their exile. We believe this reference to Babylon is Rome, where Peter was and the church was that he's writing from. So Peter and that church were there together in that center of worldly sin and power and persecution that was about to begin in in terrible ways. But Peter and his church knew that they were exiles in that land. And he was setting up a, a connection between these people who were living in exile in their homeland physically because they were awaiting their spiritual homeland. But more than that, the criterion for the love greeting that's sent is that of being likewise chosen. Just as the people that Peter wrote to were the elect exiles, they were chosen, selected by God for salvation. There are brothers and sisters across the world, even in the center of the worldly system, Rome, that are likewise chosen for salvation. And that relationship we have with God through Jesus is the basis for strangers loving one another in this unconditional way. I mean, there's no qualification here about, you know, well, you should love these people because of how much they've done for you. You should love them. There's nothing here about how worthy they are, how attractive they are, so you should love them. There's nothing, there's nothing in there. There's no reason given even for concern or care about who these people are, except that they belong to the Lord Jesus, just as you do. So therefore, they love you and you love them because of Jesus in us, because of Jesus in them. Uh, We're all exiles together. (laughs) All of us who believe in Christ Jesus, who have submitted to Him as Lord and Savior, who are here in this place, who are watching or listening online, who are around us in other biblical Christ-centered churches around us, we're people together. We're brothers and sisters. And we're all awaiting our true homeland, so we all love one another with a true, sincere, caring unconditional, sacrificing kind of love for no other reason than just that we all belong to Jesus. Look who else sends this greeting. Mark, (laughs) 
the same Mark that was with Paul and deserted him. He's, he's coming back, and now he's here with Peter. And he's sending his greeting of love. Remember, Barnabas took Mark. When, when Barnabas split up with Paul, he took Mark and he went to this area. The, Perga was the, the southern port of this area, and that's where Mark had left them before, left the work. Now he had come back with Barnabas, had gone through that area with the churches. He probably had gotten to know some of the people. They knew who he was. So he could have established real relationships there with them. So not only are there strangers in this church that Peter's a part of, sending their greetings, now there's Mark, one that they may know and may know well, sending his greetings, his love greetings as well. Mark is such a good picture for us. I mean, since that time of abandoning the work and the missionary trip, before it got busy and difficult, there's been such growth in Mark. Paul even calls him later on very useful in ministry. He's here in Rome working with Peter. We believe this is where Mark, working with Peter, wrote the gospel of Mark that we have in the New Testament. Again, someone who failed, who who fell on his face, but then was restored and forgiven and is useful in ministry. And Peter's love for Mark here is so strong that he calls him his son. He wasn't his physical son, but his spiritual son because he mentored him and he developed and loved this man. So you see love abounding between all believers mentioned here, those who are just barely mentioned, those that we know hardly anything about, and those that knew each other really well. Whether they'd never met or they knew each other, it's love, and it's the same love, the same love for all. Whether they've failed in the past, like Peter or Mark, whether they've been faithful the whole time, like Sylvanus, it's love, and it's the same love that binds them together. Mark apparently wasn't good at being the first missionary into an area, like Paul was, but he didn't quit ministry. He didn't stop serving just because he found some way that he wasn't good at serving. He stayed faithful to the Lord, and his love for the Lord and his love for his people grew until he found out what he could do in ministry and what he could do in service. And then he was faithful at that. But it was the love that allowed that kind of forgiveness. It was love that allowed that kind of failure (laughs) and restoration. So it's love that allows that faithfulness to flourish. Well, look at Peter's last words now in this letter. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Christ Jesus, we know him, brothers and sisters, as the Prince of Peace. He's the one who brings peace between us and God. Without Jesus, there is no peace with God. There is no peace really with one another. Without Jesus, we are enemies of God. We're dead in our trespasses and our sins. We deserve his wrath because of our sins. But in Jesus, he has reconciled us to God. He's brought us together with our great heavenly father. He's broken down the wall of separation between us and God and between us and different kinds of people, whether we're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. With the love that Jesus brings, he brings peace. The peace that surpasses understanding. At our house, we call that the the, I don't get it piece. (laughs) I don't understand. (laughs) Where does that come from? The peace for us and among us. It's the same peace that Peter opened the letter with. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the middle of a world that doesn't know peace, that has no peace in it, and will never know peace until Jesus reigns over it, we can have peace because of Jesus, because of who he is, what he's done, and because of him within us. 
That peace, though, is only in Christ. Look at what Peter says here. Who is this peace directed toward? All of you who are in Christ. See, this peace isn't given to everybody. It depends on whether you are in Christ. And we want to encourage you to look at what life looks like for you right now. What do you see in the future? Do you have peace in your life now? Do you see peace in the world in the future? Peace even in your world. And the reason that there's not peace is because of sin. It's because of your sin and my sin. Other people's sin affects us and and it can hurt us in different ways, but it's only your sin that you can deal with. You can't deal with other people's sin. So what are you doing about your sin? Are you holding on to your sin? Are you holding on to the, the promises of sin that this will feel good, this will make you happy, this, will, this sin promises to give you all that you want, but it can never deliver anything other than death, ultimately. And it brings more sin and pain with no hope. Brother, sister, man, woman, if you're not a brother or sister, let go of your sin. Turn away from your sin. Run to Jesus. He is the Lord. He's the Savior. When you believe in him enough to run away from your sin and run to him, he will forgive you of your sins because he's already paid the penalty for them. He has suffered the judgment that you and I deserve. And then he rose from the grave to prove his success in paying for that. When you submit to him, he does not promise to give you what you want but he does promise to give you what you need. And he's able to deliver on that promise. If you have not believed in Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior, you will not know this peace, this kind of peace between you and God, this kind of peace between you and the people around you, this kind of peace with the troubles that happen around you and inside of you. And even when you have become a child of God, sometimes we forget that we have this peace available to us. But it's there for us. In either case, if you're a believer and you've forgotten about that peace, or if you're not a believer but you're here and you're hearing this, we want to talk with you. We want to be here for you. Please don't leave until you've talked with us and we can show you this Jesus from the Word of God. Our application this morning, what do we take from here and remember? Is that even though these were just closing words to a letter, they're not empty, they're applicable to us. And the exhortation is to be faithful. Be faithful. Again, it's required of stewards to be faithful. 2 Timothy 2 gives us hope. Paul says if we are faithless, he is faithful. He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God is always faithful. And when your faith is in him, your faith will not fall. How can you be more faithful to him, his word, his people, prayer and worship, all of those? How can you be more, examine our lives, that's what we're after. We're examining our lives, trying to figure out how can I be more faithful to him and his word and his people and to pray and to worship and all those. You know, faithfulness is part of the evidence of the Holy Spirit working within us. When we submit to Jesus and the Holy Spirit takes up residence, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, and self-control. So follow these examples that we have and, and to grow in faithfulness and to be faithful. The best example, of course, we have is Jesus himself. He's called the faithful and the true one. So be faithful. Next in our application, live in the grace of God firmly. 
firmly living in the, the grace of God. Change your way of thinking from the world's ways to the word's ways. That's the Lord's way. <laughs> Learn to see his grace to you in everything that happens. You know, God's going to be 100% successful in all that he plans to do. <laughs> he will be 100% successful. And so when we realize that and we start cooperating with that, He's going to be there for us. He's going to be there through it all. Stand firm in this grace that he gives us to live this life. Not in your own strength, not in your own abilities, not your own intelligence or strength or anything that you have, but in Christ Jesus and in the grace that he brings to you every day. What are the things that you have had to endure? Look back on your life, the things that you've had to endure. What are those things that you may need to change your perspective on? You know, sometimes we think about, well, that didn't happen, or if that hadn't happened, then things would be different. And that's true, things would be different, but they wouldn't be the way that God planned for them to be. How can we adjust our attitude to one of trust as we do what we must rather than to fight against God's work? Think about the things in the past that have happened, and maybe there's bitterness, maybe there's anger. Changing our perspective, the things that are happening around us now, we need to change our attitude about to be trusting to the Lord. What could you encounter that would cause you to fall from God's grace? What could happen that would say, you know what, I don't, there's none of this. None of this is real. This doesn't matter. Listen, if you're in Christ Jesus, nothing will ever separate you from his love. But you can, you can falter in your own faith. You, you can forget everything that he's done. You can f- lose sight of his grace. Don't do that. Live firmly. Stand firmly in the grace that he's given. Finally, in our application, love one another genuinely, sacrificially, and impartially. Impartially. Are there Christians here or in other churches that you need to change the way you see them? Maybe, they're, maybe you've seen them as weird or annoying. <laughs> maybe... Maybe you've been angered by some. Do we need to change them from being weird or annoying or frustrating or angering to being loved by God and therefore loved by you to them? Are there ways that you can be growing your love for others? Are there ways that you can be demonstrating that love for others? Don't wait and don't be afraid. We say it often here, but when we start to love ourselves less, love others more and love Christ most, that will overcome those fears in the waiting. So peace to all of you who are in Christ. For those who are not in Christ, this may sound mean, but we ask that you don't find peace until you find it only in Christ Jesus. And the people around you want to help you with that. We love you enough to tell you that, and we hope that for you so that you'll turn to him. Father, we praise you, God, for this great and amazing truth. Father, we praise you that even though it is brief, God, it's so full of your truth in love for us. God, we pray that these words, even though they wrap up this letter, would not wrap up our knowledge, that they would not wrap up our responsibility. God, that they would continue in our heart and mind. Father, that you would use what we've learned and what we've studied to grow us, to change us, to make us holy as you are holy. Father, we pray that you'd give us these words to speak to those around us. Father, that we can share this hope with the people that live around us, that work around us. 
God, this is the season when people recognize that something is different and, and something is happening and, and people recognize a, a spirit in the air and they recognize uh, different feelings and different thoughts. But Father, I pray that you would use us to communicate Jesus to them in our actions, in our words. Father, that they would see and notice a difference, that, that they would ask us. And Father, that we would be ready, prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. And Father, I pray that for others, we wouldn't wait for them to ask. But we would just share and we would tell the truth about Jesus. God, I pray every day that you would grow us, that you would change us, that you would sanctify us, Lord. This happens because of your work in us, because of your grace. We praise you for the grace you've given us, God. We pray that you would help us to see and understand more about your grace. Help us to live that way for your glory every day, no matter what's happening, when it's hard, when it's easy. We praise you for Jesus in his name. Amen.